Hello, my name's uh, James Isley. I'm the CEO and founder of Cognizant. Cognizant is a B2B sales enablement and data platform which helps um, companies to find and generate new business revenue. James Isley's Cognizant help B2B companies find new markets. This is Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bonnell Advisors, the consultants who help you expand your business stateside. I'm Nastran Tavakoli-Farr, and in this season of the show, we're hearing from companies who've been there and done that and can teach us some do's and don'ts and much more. We'll also be hearing from Mount Bonnell CEO, Sebastian Sauerborn. He's been answering your questions about expanding to the US. So send these over to info at mountbonnell.com. You can also find that in the show notes. This week, we're talking to James Islay, the founder of Cognizant. Now, this is a sales acceleration platform which gives B2B sales teams real-time data, which can help them find new revenue streams using AI and machine learning. James used to work in financial trading and created an app to provide financial intelligence based on real-time events and big data. He realized these solutions could also be applied to sales, sparking the seed for Cognizant. He told us more about the company's start and the expansion into the US. I used to be a trader. That was my previous job. So I, my background is programming. I'm a software engineer. Uh, my last role before I started Cognizant, I actually wrote computer programs that traded the markets, oil, German power and carbon. I, I lived in Switzerland, in Zurich. And um, I had a friend that started what was at the time like a fintech unicorn. I went to visit. I just felt the energy of the play, of his company. They just got their funding round. They were doing being super successful uh, and it's just electrifying walking into the room because just everybody was so motivated so happy which is a complete contrast to where I was working at the time where you know it's like a Swiss utility it was very boring it was very you know nobody socialized in the evenings it was just like the polar opposite in terms of energy um and I just really realized I was in the wrong place and I wanted to kind of re be in that type of a place and I could build it myself so so that was when I decided to start my own adventure and then you quit. That sounds like a great story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Very interesting. And and why Cognizant? Why why did you focus on what you guys do? It, initially, because I was in finance, it was a fintech idea. So so I joined a program um, called Fintech Sandbox in Boston. Um, so they provided all the data feeds. It was a great great program to begin because you need data. You need you know it's highly expensive to kind of start and tinker. Um, so. I joined that, and then from that, I got into another program called Winton Labs, which was based at the time at Winton Capital in, in Hammersmith. So uh, I was focused on building a, um, I suppose, like the, the fintech version of what Cognizant is now, where we would help hedge funds to find new funds. Uh, but we found that that wasn't a great market, and we eventually, after a lot of um, heartache, um, we pivoted into uh, doing uh general um lead uh, new business generation for for um in particular smbs but now all companies of all sizes could you explain james um what uh, benefits a user a customer client has using your systems what they use it for what they get out of it Sure. So in our system, you can you know, imagine like a tool like LinkedIn where you can go in and you can say, you know, give me all the heads of sales in London. But then you have an issue that you can only really outreach those people on um, LinkedIn in mail, which has a very low response rate. So in our tool, we have an extra dimension of data, which is events. So you can say, like, give me all the heads of sales in London 
but whose companies are hiring SDRs or who are raising a funding round, which means you build a more relevant audience with companies that are growing. So firstly, that audience is likely to engage you more. But then instead of just hitting them on email, you can hit them on email, by phone, um, by social, like like LinkedIn. Um, And you do that in a cadence, which means that you get a far higher response rate on that set of data, which means that if you have, you know, every company has a capacity to actually do a number of calls or do a number of emails. And it's important that you do that to an audience that's more likely to respond with the right messaging that will make them respond. And so we solve all that problem. And now the bigger, another big issue that came up since we started the company is really data compliance because we got new laws like GDPR. We got a new California law that goes live in January. So you have to, you know, got laws in Canada like Castle. So every country has different rules and regulations about how you can outreach and what content needs to be in the outreach, like, you know, opt-out links, et cetera. So solving for that problem as well so that you, when you do outreach to somebody in Canada versus California versus London, you're actually doing it in a compliant way so that you don't get fined. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's, that's the other problem we solve for. This sounds like a very like a very interesting um, um, application. I mean, I've, I've all sorts of questions about it. For example... I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you're at liberty to say that, but but how do you actually get all that that information, which seems highly relevant for someone who is looking, you know, into these contacts as leads, for example? I mean, how do you how do you know that the email address, the phone number, and all those other details, for example, that they are in, in a funding round at the moment, for example? Yeah. So we we collect data from a mosaic of places. So like we buy data from companies like uh, Crunchbase in terms of funding. We have data partnerships with uh, other companies to get job posting data, contact data. Uh, we collect um, our own contact data, our own research team collects contact data. Uh, we also have uh, our network effect because our tool actually um, sends data, um, emails, you, you actually dial data, then we actually can learn if a number is good. We learn if an email is good. We also collect like signature data from the traffic on our network. So all of that network effect is like our core strength really, because it means that we have proprietary first first party data. Um, and and it means that the data is high quality because we know it's been engaged and used. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, that helps us with the quality aspects, which is something that, you know, uh, other products really don't have that because we're this all-in-one solution. Usually companies have had to buy the data or buy the sales engagement and put them together. Um, but because we have an all-in-one, we can actually create feedback loops between the data and the actual platform, the, the actual engagement of the data. And that is the key, right? The quality of the data for the user is the key. So if he wants, if, if he, he uses a system like this, he wants to be sure that the data is accurate, up to date. And, you know, I mean, obviously people respond, uh, respond to them. It's very interesting. So you guys founded in 2016? Yeah. So, so I, I left, I, I mean, I bought the brand name in 2015, uh, which is really where the company began, which is just me buying a, the brand name that I liked. And then in 2016, I, I pretty much left uh, my then job and uh, basically just um, was looking, experimenting with different ideas on accelerator programs. And then in 2017, I really went all in on the, on the business. I mean, there was a point in 2016 that I just ran out of money and then and then had to go back and do some consultancy work and then um, managed to get funding and then went, you know, went full time on this job at the beginning of 2017. Um, and there was about four of us at the time. And we've so, just walked through a really packed yeah. office. So. And that was 125 oh, plus wow. people. So, and we have offices in um, 
you know, uh, we have offices in London, uh, New York, uh, Skopje, uh, Croatia, Zadar, and Singapore. Um, so now, so so we've got clients globally. You know, 425 plus clients is pretty uh, amazing. How fast it grows when you get the pieces correct. <laughs> and so earlier this year, you raised money and you expanded to the U.S. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? So uh, we had an inbound. Um, you know, uh, there's been so many lessons, but one of the the great lessons is that just keeping a very good um, profile for the company online, like great G2 crowd reviews, great Glassdoor reviews, has been really important in terms of making our company visible to external investors. And so uh, we were found by um, a firm called Peakspan. Um, they're amazing VC based in, um, they're based all over the US, but our uh, main partner we deal with is based in New York. Um, so they found us um, and then they wrote to us and wanted, like, they were interested in exploring the company in more depth in January. Um, and then you know, we started a, a process um, and then ultimately selected them in the process and then uh, took funds from them um, in, um, in, in, in July. Um, and that was like a two-tranche structure where we take, took a piece in July and we're taking another piece in, in January. Um, and that has also given us access to a richer network of advisors. So we've just uh, have uh, an advisor called Peter Deferin, who who's the ex-president of um, uh, NetSuite and who was involved in transactions, but he's been CEO of, of multiple companies. Um, so he's joining us as a board member. So they've given us a great network and also just, uh, you know, just a lot of, you know, I think the important thing with scaling is making sure that you keep having the right advisors that can help you at different points in the journey. And, you know, so far we haven't had a month where we've missed target. Like we've literally every single month hit our revenue targets. And I think, and we haven't really hit that brick wall that I've been warned about again and again. But I think that's really because we just brought in the right advisors and we've hired ahead of the curve. And and then, you know, there's just key mistakes you can make. Like we, I nearly made the mistake in 2017 of just going into the US market too early. Um, and I think that could have killed us. I saw companies in a similar situation to us that got killed by going to the US too early and spending all of their Series A funding on US teams and then blowing, getting that wrong and then pretty much getting crippled. So, you know, it's just that's been a key part of our journey is just making sure that we had the right advisors. And that's what Peakspan are bringing, that next level advisor that can scale us from the, you know, from the 10, 10 to 100 million revenue if that's where we decide to go. So this is an interesting point. When, when do you know if it's too early or too late or, what, what, you know, when's the right time? I think the first thing to know is that you don't know because you're like, if you're a first-time entrepreneur like I was, right, you don't, you don't have the experience. You read things in books, but, you, you know, it's easy. You make one decision and you don't see the consequences until six months down the line, right? And it can be pretty horrific. Like a decision like moving to America or moving to a country too early without the right amount of capital or without the right people or doing it in the wrong way. Um, can cripple you, it can kill your firm. Not, not just cripple it, but really like just kill it. So it's really important you get it right. So you, it's important to get the right advice and to talk to people who've done it before and sound out what's happening in the market. Also talk to people who failed at it. Like one of the big things before we moved to the US and we just opened an office in New York was I talked to a lot of founders, CEOs in the, in, in, that had actually gone to the US and failed and then asking them why they had failed. Um, and so... All of that helped me to put together the picture about how we go into the U.S. and it's now been very successful. So you know we've had we've hit, we're hitting our targets in the U.S. 
every month now. Now the question is just like how aggressively do we expand into the US market? Because clearly we can replicate the metrics that we've got done in the UK in the US market. And what was the, the key for you? I mean, for that decision um, to expand, was it like product readiness? Or what did you, what was the key moment that you said, okay, well, now's the right time? Or you hit a certain target in revenues or you had these, you had access to these new funds that you were talking about? Yeah, I think it was having access to new funds, having a US investor, that, 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 that was important. I think I'd always wanted to be in the US market. Um, that, that was, uh, you know, it was a desire, but, the, but I'd, luckily been held back from doing it too early and in the wrong way um I, yeah i think that generally it's the funds product readiness a bit because we we'd been we had kind of been doing so we've been so successful and you know we, we there was some things like having direct dials in the product that it was the right time because you just got that into the product so you know um yeah all of all of that everything kind of came together at the right time and you said the investor approached you Yes, they came to us. Yeah, and and part of the interesting thing about like how investors look for companies is that online profile that you have. So is you know I see companies ignoring that, like ignoring their Glassdoor reviews, ignoring their customer feedback reviews, or not having any. And that I I think you know for us it was it's kind of like you know we 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 had a quality process on top of it, but it wasn't something I was like specifically focused on. But in terms of us. Now knowing, I, I would if I was ever, ever to build like a brand new company, I would I'd make sure that 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 we were doing that in a regular way. You know, you know when you get great MPS results, asking for an online review, like just asking because people don't. It's not part of their natural workflow. Same with employees and Glassdoor reviews, right? People only write reviews when they're unhappy or miserable. So you need to ask them for a good review when they're happy um, to, to to get good reviews. Yeah, that's a very good point. You know, I mean, we know, um, I, I know of another business um, um, in the States, they're a roofing business. And their entire business is based on their great Google review structure. Okay, so they are the leader there. It has all lots of consequences. I mean, you're higher ranked in Google. Google ads are a lot cheaper, you know, when you have, when you have good um, reviews. I think this is something that is incredibly important um, for startups and in many industries. And I think that this is very impressive um, that you took care of it properly and then you had even investors approach it. I think I've never heard that before. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because their, their scanning software actually scans the review. Like when they're looking for companies, it actually scans and ranks companies by these online this online profiles, right? And so it's it's important to understand that that's part of their discovery process. It's also part of their decision-making process. If you have two companies side by side and you're thinking about which one do I invest in because you have limited information. If one's got horrific class door reviews and all the employees are complaining about how horrible the CEO is versus the ones all singing the praise of the CEO, you know, which one are you going to invest in, right? So, you know, the the and also you tend to find that companies that have terrible glass door reviews don't really I mean, from what I've seen of the companies that were, I would say, peer to peer to us back in 2017, you don't see those companies that have performed or grown, right? Because of all the internal issues, because you know, generally early stage companies in particular, they don't have much of a management structure. The CEO is driving the company. And if the CEO has issues and isn't listening to feedback and in, and solving his issues as a CEO, then the company's not going to go anywhere. Well, this is interesting because I think this whole discussion about company culture is a bit of a new one. So it, it, it seems that it's even helping with investment, not just, you know, helping the internal operations. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, do, it, it, I mean, it, 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 company culture is... Um, just is everything really. If you build a great company culture, 
um, you know, you don't have problems with retention, you know, uh, it's a more pleasant place to work. Um, I mean, that's been really important to us. Like the, 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 you know, we do so much for culture here. Um, and employee engagement and making employees happy. Um, I, I spend time with employees at all levels just to make sure that they're happy and that the management structures are working all the way down. And things like one-to-ones are really important. Um, just celebrating success. I mean, if you go to our sales floor, you'll hear like continuous like applause when people close deals. You've got like a really cool... Uh, piece of technological sales screen, which just shows all the, what the current competitions and the win ratios and all that kind of stuff. I mean, all of that's really important just to celebrate success. We do quarterly big parties and regular monthly parties uh, or events. Um, and all of that, you know, um, helps create an environment where um, everybody's really happy to come to work every day. So I'm wondering, um, what's it like sort of transplanting that company culture into a new office in a new country where your employees yeah. might be used to something very different? Um, well, the, the important thing about when we opened the New York office was to make sure that one of our main uh, our, our main early employees, who, who was called Chris, um, who was the head of customer success, um, he, he moved over to that VP of America's role. So he knew the company culture. He knew. The other thing was when we brought the initial staff on, they came over and trained for at least a month in London. You know, we had a summer sports day. So they were involved in the summer sports day and all that kind of stuff. So like really making sure that they felt the culture and then that gets transported over to the US. And they're just making sure like I, I do monthly town halls so that um, which include everybody across the whole globe. That's really important to make sure that everybody's in sync and that everybody's included and that you know making sure that there's a christmas party in every region for instance like small things just to make sure that one office doesn't feel that they're missed out so you know it's, it was super important to me like we've got our london christmas party tomorrow and we've got um you know at least at least the senior people from um the macedonia and the croatia offices are here to also be part of that and then i go over and visit those offices regularly it's just important that that um that they feel that they're not um, secondary to the London office and that everybody's as important to one as as if they were, you know, like how you treat your children, right? You don't, I, you, you want to make sure that, you know, there isn't, you know, there isn't complete favoritism on, on one. And in the US, how was the reaction to that sort of culture? Was that something that was expected uh, in New York, for example, or is this a new thing? How did they react? Oh, to, well, because we're a sales company, right? We still sell technology. So the, the company is really about um, you know, uh, celebrating success, having fun. You know, I used, I used to be a software engineer and I, I, you know, I used to work in investment banks. So, um, and in Swiss investment bank and, and in Switzerland. So, you know, again, like it was a lot less, um, I'd say like intense and fun as, uh, as here. It's far more corporate, more, you know, rules like know your own boundaries, you know, that, that type of emphasis rather than, you know, here we're really about um, working together as teams and just having fun and celebrating success. So it wasn't, a, it, for New York, it was easy to, it was easy to transport that. It's a big city, it's a fun, it's, you know, it's a 24-7 city like London. It's very easy to transport the culture from there to, to, to New York. This is New York, a miracle city, a city of tall buildings, narrow, dark streets. Magnificent parks, broad avenues, homes and schools, stores and theaters, and palatial hotels. A fascinating city, an incredible city. 
To many of the world's peoples, New York City and the United States are one and the same. Its skyscrapers, traffic-filled thoroughfares, and crowded sidewalks are thought of as typically American, a monument to our nation's restless energy, to our passion for things big and great. For New York is both a big city and a great city, the largest city of the Western Hemisphere, second largest in the world. It is home to almost eight million people, and to millions of Americans, it has become the symbol of our country. So you said that you had tried to do a move to New, uh, an expansion to the U.S. earlier. No, I, 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 I thought about it, but then we, but they, my board said it wasn't the right time, and I listened to that advice, and we didn't, we didn't go ahead with it. So. And then you said you spoke to loads of founders who'd failed. Yeah. What, what were the takeaways? Um, the, the big takeaway is, you know, like the typical mistake that people make is that they go and hire a very senior, you need sales, right? Sales is like where you start generally in a country. So you typical thing to think it's, oh, we'll just hire somebody from Salesforce or we'll hire somebody from, you know, Marketo, who was the, a senior salesperson there. So and, like uh, a local star. Yeah, a local superstar, right? Yeah. But that, that's the key thing, right? The, the bad mistake is superstar. And I, when, when I speak to some of the kind of, I suppose the seed series A VCs there, I sometimes got recommendations about, oh, I know this person that used to work at Marketo or something like that, and and they'll they'll come in and they'll uh, you know help. But the, the people that go and then hire those, you tend to fail. That that's really like a big part. Like that's where it all falls down. Like because a they're very expensive. Um, they want very big salaries because they're used to very big salaries, and then they have high expectations on you know equity, etc. Um, they probably they were never at uh, probably Marketo or Salesforce in the early days. Or early days then is not early days now, right? 2006 is not anything like 2019. 2020 is not going to be anything like 2019. We have to ad develop and adapt our tactics. Um, you need to be kind of scrappy when you're building any new office. And so there's that issue in terms of finding a scrappy person that's going to build a, a, a process that's going to work. And it's actually going to grind because your first people, you want them to grind and actually pick up the phone and do deals and go and meet people. You don't want them to just oversee people that they hire um then they're also not ingrained in the culture um it's really important i mean culture is everything so if you don't transport transplant culture then you're going to have a lot of issues anyway um and then generally people that are very experienced come with their own i generally found they come with their own baggage of issues right so they they you know they work in a particular way they work in a particular time frame they've probably got a very routine life with a like you know a family responsibilities etc cetera, etc cetera. that doesn't really generally fit in with the need to be really scrappy and grind and get your metrics to have success in a very short period of time so so you know that i think all of those reasons why you really need to think about having somebody that's internal or has been internal at the main location for a while where it's successful and then transplant them to the to the place that you want to ultimately build success in. Was this the the main red flag or the main thing that was cautionary from these founders who'd failed? Uh, I think that that was the one of the that was the main running key theme is like literally who they hired. Um, uh, the other thing you can do right is as a founder you can go and then you can start that new office, um, and that you know also seems like to be another key to success. But you know. Um, 
that's generally quite hard to do, right? Because as a founder, you probably got commitments. Um, you know, the, the, it's also, have you got a number two that's actually going to run the main office when you when you leave? So that's another key uh, key thing to think about. I mean, for us, we were we we're in a good position. We had Chris, who was in a U.S. citizen, um, who'd run the customer success, so he knew our operations inside out. Um, he hadn't done sales per se before, um, but he had actually more of a sales persona than he did a customer success persona. And it was kind of a more of a natural fit for him to move into the sale, into that kind of like role where you need to do both sales and customer success. So he had like the all in skills. So, so I think it was, you know, it was useful. We had that resource and that eventually I convinced him to move to New York. And why New York? Uh, so New York, I think partly because, um, are, I suppose like are, are the, the other companies in the space that are heavily concentrated in Boston. <clears throat> we wanted to do East Coast because of just the location, the transport. I, I'd the, there's just too much of a time zone difference between West Coast. Um, so East Coast, um, I think um, we have an investment from a key partner called Oliver Wyman. They're a big management global management consultancy group. They're based in New York, so that partly helped with the relationship. Um, and, you know, right now this is like our first seed satellite office. So just getting this successful, making sure this works. New York, we've had good success in London in terms of building brand, et cetera, because we've been actively involved in the London community. So replicating that in New York and just the, there wasn't, a, a, I guess, like less of less competition in New York um, than in other lo locations. And then there wasn't, speaking to lots of recruiters, there wasn't much cost differential between New York and say Boston, but there was a lot more of a talent pool in, in New York. So all those reasons combined meant that that was a great starting location. If, if that, we might, that might not be ultimately where we expand, but right, I think right now it's a great seed location for us to actually have a base and um, know, and then to probably seed other locations from, 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 so it's a great landing point. How do the customers or the leads react to, to, this, to this new British company? Um, are they positive? Are they skeptical? Is is that even a problem, or do they treat you differently because you are a non-American company? No, I, I don't. I don't think we get treated any differently. Um, I think they, the the there's a good um, differences in the market. I mean, our market is um, far less sophisticated, the UK market. So we usually have to explain what we do in the UK market. In the US market, they've already seen multiple solutions, and so they you just you know you're another solution you have to just prove your value against these other solutions um so that's um it's a lot more competitive so we have to you know on our side we're a pretty competitive company anyway but we just have to be you know um more tuned up for that competition so i mean but so far it's been um really successful right we we're, we're, we we've we've landed we're hitting our quotas every month exceeding them um and now it's just a quick question of expanding expansion and the rate of expansion so i i, I we haven't been treated any different um that, that's and actually you know we have one or two reps that are english um, and they're apparently the, the Americans love the English accent. They do, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the New York office, you started that in September. Um, yeah. we're, we're recording this in December. So um, a couple of months in, how's it going? I mean, is it going the way you planned? Are there sort of differences in how you operate or run that office? How, how's that panning out? Uh, so far, we've... I guess yeah, it, it's going really well. Um, I think our model of focus on outbound sales has made that 
very successful as well because we just replicated our model. We're very good at hiring graduates, training them up, ramping them very quickly, and then getting um, sales through outbound sales. Like that's our core strength. And so that's what we focused on. I think we've been less successful on the marketing side so far. Um, and, you know, right now we're thinking about like how just being a bit more gorilla, I think, there in terms of the marketing side. Um, and and so, um, yeah, it's, I mean, so far it's like I'm, I'm super happy. Um, it's super successful. Um, and now it's just a question of expanding, um, you know, and, and and how we expand and where, you know, how, yeah, where, et cetera. So, you mean expanding out of New uh, York into yeah, other? Exactly. New, right now, initially, it's going to be New York, but then mm-hmm. longer term, I don't see 100 plus reps, if that's where we go, mm-hmm. in New York. It, we would have to find other locations. The other question is covering West Coast. You know, right now, we've got one customer success person, um, just, you know, a bit just because of how we evolved in Vancouver, in Canada. Um, so, you know, there's the, these kind of key questions about like, where do we expand, where do we go to, where do we locate, you know. Um, you know, we've also issues with visas in the U.S. is it's an, it's an issue for us. Um, so, you know, the, the, yeah, these are the kind of just, but these are like little problems now, right? The, the big problem of actually can we go to the U.S., can we hit our metrics, can we be successful there, that's solved. And so a moment ago, actually, you talked about the talent pool in New York. Um, I'm wondering, um, what about employees? Are there certain expectations they have which are different from from here, Get, especially given that company culture is so important? In general, salespeople just want to get rich, right? So, <laughs> so, so as long as you're giving them a great product and they're hitting their numbers and they're making revenue, like they're, they're you know doing well, then they're happy. Uh, which we do. So we've got a great product. Um, we, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're hitting their numbers. Um, so um, I don't think expectations are different in that way at all. Um, right now we have a focus on sales and customer success people. So we haven't hired engineers. Right now we've got data operations, all of that we've got in um, the Balkans and um, Macedonia, Croatia. So we're not focusing on that type type of talent. I think there, there are big differences in expectations, especially around salaries. Um, you know, salary is a bit higher than the UK. Um, hopefully, you know, that's a bit because bit of where the pound is. But, you know, maybe that will change in the near future and then it will be more comparable. But uh, right now they're a bit more expensive. But, but you, know, um, you know, so far it's been super, uh, it's, it's going really well so far and the expectations are really well aligned and the culture's really, we've got our culture over there and that's that's gone really well. And so, you know, it feels like, as one of the staff members that's, that's moved over there was in our office when we just started in late 2017. So he's like, you know, probably our sixth, seventh employee. Um, and he says like working in New York now was like how it was working Cognizant in 2017. Same kind of feel of like, you know, you know, grow, little, scrappy little startup type feel. And it's, and it's amazing to work in that environment, you know. So, so you know, they, they, they really enjoy like going back into that. Um, that, that back into that kind of feel of an organization. How many people do you have in New York right now? Uh, I think we have uh, around about five five people. How do you, in terms of like uh, sales, how do you segment the market in the US? I mean, do you right now only talk to people on the East Coast or is it basically, it doesn't matter where, do, you, do your sales people have to travel uh, to meet people? How does it work right now? So segmentation is a big 
is, is something we've been working on a lot. So this is one of the things that P Peter uh, Deferin, um, who's advising us with somebody else called uh, Howard Bell, um, so they, they've been running workshops with us. We, we've only just got to that kind of maturity where we have enough clients, we can start to do segmentation of our clients and look at which groups have been working well, uh, responding to you know, responding throughout the sales funnel and also easy to retain as customers. So, so right now we've, you know, we, we're segmenting, we've got kind of core, um, like core segments that we're focused on. And, you know, now we're kind of doubling down on those segments and, you know, our aim really is to try and, um, a little bit, of course we go head to head with the competitors, the company of companies out there regularly, but our aim is really to try and find as much as possible blue ocean that we can go into where we don't really have, much like competition. I mean, we have some unique parts of our data, you know, like we have the event data, which is, we were very strong on that event data, which we can really show differential to other companies in the space. And so, you know, just making sure that we highlight our differences and we we try to find segments where they're, they're, there's not, they're not focused. It's a very big market. We're in a huge market. So, you know, it's just important that that we make it as easy as, it, as it, we can on ourselves. In terms of your sales organization, I mean, is it like regional right now or how do you do it? Um, no, yeah, we haven't got to that point yet where we're broken down by our sales by region. We just focus on key segments uh, and then um, and then our capacities thrown at the outbound capacities that's thrown at those. And then we have more generalized marketing. So we have inbounds coming in across and then we do events uh, and events. We get like, you know, a mix of of of. Um, prospects from the events one of the things we we hear quite a lot from other guests that we have in this podcast is the the importance of the boots on the ground right so you travel around the country you meet people shake hands and so on and so forth is that the same in in your business i think we have a our main focus on actually our outbound um team and the efficiency um i'm super fascinated by like the science of the metrics and conversion rates and all that and tuning those and tuning our processes to get that as efficient as possible which is why we've just had insane growth right we've gone from to about the you know this time last year about 2.5 million AR now we're 7 million AR right we, you know I hope at the minimum we'll grow 110% next year um, and about you know 14 million plus in AR um, so you know we've got that nailed um and keep tweaking it. Um, it is important to meet customers. I mean, I, I, one of the things our challenges right now is how to really nail enterprise sales because it's like literally me as the enterprise salesperson doing the really big deals. Um, so, you know, we've got these things to kind of work on um, where we can make even more revenue. Like, you know, how do we do enterprise sales and how do we do the really big deals? Um, and, and, you know, that's, the net, that's our challenges for 2020 and how to mature in those areas. So meaning that the, um, the because the majority are kind of smaller businesses, the customers, there's no need really to to visit them or something like this. You just do it like over the phone, email and another platform. Yeah, right now. I mean, it, it, it would be great to do more and more of that. Um, just get help with product feedback, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, product team does that to a degree. Um, I visit like the strategic clients as much as I can. Um, I love meeting smaller businesses. The great thing about events, the shows, which I love to do and be there for the shows, you get to meet a lot of clients current clients and also prospects and talk to them about their issues show them the product and get feedback that's a great um place to do feedback i, I just i would just do events from that perspective or at least do a few events and, and as a founder i think it's important to be there on the ground and actually be 
you know, listening to the feedback about the product, looking at the competition that's in the room and what else, who else is out there uh, or lack of competition is interesting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, you've only got so much time and there's a lot to do. Um, so you try and make that as most efficient. I would say like meeting customers and prospects and everything. The event, the big shows are really good. Like in the UK, we have Sales Innovation Expo. We have Technology for Marketing. Those are really great events to kind of meet lots of customers and look at what else tech, tech's in the market. So James, if someone came to you and was like, you know, I've got this company, I'm thinking of expanding. What, what are the questions you tell them to go and think about or things to investigate a bit more before making that move? Um, the... The first thing would, first of all, I say like if you anybody wants to contact me on LinkedIn or anything and ask for advice, you're welcome. Uh, I'm happy to help advise. Uh, we it's important to build a model, um, like a, a good financial model of like how it's going to work, the costs, so you're not just making the decision on the fly and then and then working out the financial impact two six months down the line when it's too late. So it's good to have a very detailed model, um, and that model should also then be tied to what we call our sales capacity model. So like actually this, the the what sales will be generating and how you you know like we have detailed models of breakdown like number of you know. Um, dials, you know, number of like, or cadence steps that get run, generating the number of sales qualified leads, uh, you know, that, that, what conversion rate should be, all of that. So you can actually literally say, okay, I'm putting these boots on the ground. Like I'm, I'm taking this team over, this team should be delivering this in month one, month two, and then you should see the financial impact. All of that should be modeled out right down to those detailed metrics because then you can catch it very early, right? I mean, you do. if you just have a high-level financial model, you, you know, you're going to wait till the end of month one and say, oh, why didn't we hit our sales goal? And now you're starting spending a month figuring out, okay, why? And then it's probably like two, month two, month three, and you're starting to get too late. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you, you've got it right down to like, okay, we should have made this number of dials today, and we did like 10% of the number of dials. Why? Okay, because the we don't have... Um, Wi-Fi in the office isn't working properly. You know, <laughs> small things, right? Can 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 cripple you. So so like the the just those types of things and monitoring those types of things are really important. And and then you know, um, so yeah, I think just having that detailed planning done before you make the decision, um, and then that will help you guide guide you to make sure that on a daily basis that you're being successful. Which means ultimately on a monthly basis you'll be successful which ultimately means the, the new office will be successful. I mean, I'm getting the impression you really build a system, you know, you really build a system for everything, you know, for the, for the processes. And I think if I understand you correctly, uh, and I think you have, you probably uh, have that opinion as well, that the key is really the system, right? The system that you build. And um, it, it's not, it doesn't depend so much on, um, you know, what you do as an individual, but it, it's a system that's there and that you can, you can replicate that. And you, you can feed that system, and this is what makes it ultimately successful. This is the key learning from living in Switzerland: <laughs> is uh, everything there is a process, right? Like that. Yeah. If if people understand the process more than they understand the logic of of what they're doing, like so, I I, I can tell you some crazy stories about living in Switzerland, but um, generally everybody there like has the process like fixed in their minds, and and they just run the process, and then everything works. Whereas in England. Everything's broke, breaks from time to time, and you know it's all a bit chaotic because we don't have systems. Or we have a system, we don't follow the system, right? So it's really important first to design and build the system and communicate the system, and then to check through metrics that it's running 
continuously and is working, right? And then everything runs smoothly and everything runs like Switzerland and, you know, you end up with a... Trends on time, as they say, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, James, just to wrap up, what are your do's and don'ts for expanding to the US? Uh, I think uh, do's, uh, number one, um, take over internal talent. Um, that would be number one. Uh, or, or if you're going to hire there, bring them over, ingrain them in the culture, make sure they spend a lot of time and become part of your culture and then open the office. It's really important to bring over your culture. Uh, don't let separate cultures develop. Um, that, that would be number one. Um, number two, plan in detail and make sure that you're checking that that plan and the metrics are happening on a daily basis to make sure it's being successful. Um, and, and, and yeah, I think if you do those two things, you're going to be ultimately be successful. And any massive words of caution? Um, words of caution. I, I mean, just I mean, just seeing that a couple of companies that I know have kind of been killed by going over there. You just have to really make sure that you've got the capital and stuff. I mean, it's just so alluring, right? That um, the American market's so big, right? And so a lot of companies go over there too early and then end up getting crushed because it's. It is a bigger market, but it's got a lot more competition. So, it, it, you know, the the thing is, and this is the key learning that we had from us is, uh, you know, when I was thinking about the U.S. market earlier, our investors are just focusing on your home market. And there's so much, if you've got a process that's running well here and you're hitting your metrics every single month and that's going well here, um, then why stop? You know, you could be adding here. Like, have you really hit capacity here? It's a lot easier to add here than it is to hit another market. Um, unless there's a strategic reason why you're going to a new market, if you can just keep adding here and keep taking more revenue. Have you really exhausted your total addressable market in, in your home market? If you haven't, then you should be kind of continuously expanding here. Um, so, um, and if you haven't, if you're not hitting your metrics in your home market, why are you even thinking about another external market? Because you're going to kill yourself. Like, you know, so, so, so you need to really make sure you get your home market right. And that, that, that's like number three is just to keep asking that question. Have I really, really got my home market nailed to the point where I'm really ready to take on the new challenge of the, 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 the new country? But I would, I would say, you know, with regards to that, I mean, we had people on that podcast, for example, who said they went to the States too late. They should have gone earlier. Right. Right. I think it depends a bit on the industry as well. Mm -hmm. So that particular person I'm talking about, she's like in, uh, she's in medicine or med, med care, you know. So I think it, it really depends. I'm, I'm not sure you can make a lot of money with, you know, medical devices or products in the UK. Yeah. You know, it's a lot easier to, to say, well, okay, we do it here, we try it here, we build it here, but then ultimately, you know, it's much easier to grow it in the US yeah. for certain things. I think it depends, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm t I guess I'm talking more about like on ours, it was like that's B2B SaaS, right? Like if you're, if you, you know, where it's more in B2B SaaS, it's likely that there's other competitive products out there. It's likely that, you know, um, if you're doing well in your home market, that's the key question of like, if I, you know, where do I add a rep? Do I add a rep here or do I add a rep in the US? And you know, there's a cost, different costs to those things. And you know, if I can get, if I only have so much capital, or I can only, you know, increase my burn by a certain amount of money, um, where is that most efficient to do? You have got to ask those questions rather than just say, "Oh, the U.S. market's so sexy. I want to go to the U.S. market," because you know, so so you know, it might there's probably you know, this is just efficiency. Yeah, no, I think I, mean, I think I totally get. It. I think it's it, it's true. I mean, we uh, we spoke to one company. They were like in the gaming, you know, sector, three uh, D and everything. They said they came to the decision. 
they are not going to do it at all. You know, there's no need for them. I mean, they will have some evangelists there who, you know, go out and you kind, of, kind of talk about their stuff. But they found it's unnecessary, right? They go to the trade shows, you know, with all the, the coal company goes to trade shows in California. Um, so um, I think the point is, but I think the point you're making is um, that you have to consider it really well. You have to prepare it really well. You have to ask yourself this question, when is the right time? And what is right for my business, right? Well, so well, that is the, I think, um, and, and I think there you're absolutely right. I mean, that's absolutely key. One, one of the, actually, and that may trigger the thought in my mind about um, one of the things that recently came up, which is, is important to think about, is that growth, if you're trying to raise money from the U.S., one of the things that growth stage investors uh, like later down at the 10 million AR plus one is to see that you have had traction in the U.S. market and that you can, you know, that's one of the risks, right? That they give you money, that you go to the U.S. market and you don't know how to expand in the U.S. So if you had a bit of a success in the U.S., then it de-risks it for them and it makes you more of an attractive proposition because if that money then is going to go into you, expanding you in the U.S., then it's de-risks because you've already proven out the metrics and they don't have anything to worry about. Which is now where we are. We're now in a great position where we can prove that we can do well in the US market. And so we're de-risked for any sort of a future investment. That's James Islay of Cognizant, who help B2B companies find new markets. This is Move Your Business to the United States, the podcast for Mount Bonnell Advisors, which helps you to do just that. I'm Nastya Antavakoli-Farr, and this episode we spoke to Cognizant founder James Islay. We've put their details in the show notes. Do check them out. Emmett Glynn is our sound engineer, and Novena Panovich is our podcast manager. You'll also have heard some samples from the Prelinger archives, who have some great historical material from the U.S. We'll be back in two weeks. Send us your questions about expanding to the U.S. The address is info at See the show notes for more. Talk to you soon.